Hello again, it's Tom Calvard here, continuing this series of podcasts looking at my recently published book by Rutledge, Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organisations. This episode is actually getting into the chapters of the book proper, and I'll be discussing chapter one, which is called Mainstream Approaches. And as I've noted in the previous two episodes, defining exactly what a mainstream approach to organisational diversity is or consists of is not a straightforward, precise matter, and we should probably keep an open mind rather than setting up a a straw man or a caricature that is easy to to dismiss or to, to downplay or critique. But I do argue that for some decades now, I would say 30 to 40 years, there has been a prominent body of literature, lots of research articles, lots of studies, streams of articles published in what many academics would refer to as top management journals, applied psychology, sometimes human resource management journals, most often North American in tradition, almost always quantitative in terms of the data they collect and report on, and a positivistic overall approach to studying diversity and designing studies to understand diversity in organisations. The idea that it is possible to treat diversity as a sort of objective phenomena, phenomenon in the world and to find out general scientific type laws or trends about it um, that will hold wherever the conditions are, are recreated or replicated. And although I deal with history in a couple of chapters time in a more critical way, there's a limited history or a narrower history of these mainstream approaches themselves that we can tell again, largely confined to North America and considering the civil rights era and the 1960s and some of the legislation that came out of that which made it illegal to discriminate against minorities and placed certain requirements on equal opportunities in the employment of demographic minorities. And the smaller piece of history, but one that does get reported in some of the background to some of these papers and studies, is what was called the Workforce 2000 Report. And it was a future-looking report at the time because it was published in 1987 by the Hudson Institute, an American conservative think tank. And mainly what this report was saying at the time is that the workforce was changing. And as a result of what had happened on the back of the civil rights era, you did now have changing demographics in the workforce and a more diverse workforce. And this was really quite powerful in terms of heralding the sort of 1990s and and onwards from there, the idea that diversity management was something that corporations needed to do and should be doing to almost get out ahead of equal opportunities and to try and figure out what they should do about demographically diverse workforces. And researchers in what I have been calling the mainstream tradition followed suit. And in the 1980s and 1990s, there was research that was often called organisational demography. So again, the word demographic and demography appearing quite a lot, and mainly looking at populations of workers and their distributions of demographic differences. 
often looking at top management teams. And then psychologists got in on the action because they realised you could collect this data and then relate it to psychological self-report surveys around organisational behaviour attitudes. And not just surveys, but maybe actual behaviours like turnover, leaving the organisation, or innovation, communication, those sorts of organisational behaviour outcomes. And it seemed to me that part of this was just the availability of that sort of data. You know, the fact that workforces were becoming more demographically diverse allowed many researchers to collect quantitative data, whether it was people's perceptions on numbered scales of each other or just collecting people's background data. And it was attractive to people who wanted to publish research in top journals because it was a new kind of data. It wasn't just people's opinions, it was their backgrounds and the patterns of those backgrounds as they appeared in teams and layers of the workforce. So it's probably relatively easy to collect, it could be considered objective, and there was the prospect of maybe extracting some additional variables that might help us understand this new, at the time, phenomenon of diversity in the workforce. But one really important paper was published in the journal Organisation Science in 1997 by an author called Lawrence, and she noted that what this research was leading to was what she called a black box problem, that you had the demographics, we knew that there was demographic diversity, and you had the outcomes, the way teams were performing and behaving, but we didn't know what was going on in the middle. It was like a black box. We couldn't quite look inside it. And the answer in this mainstream tradition is always to reach for more variables, more complex models. Maybe the patterns are more dynamic and non-linear, Maybe there's more dimensions we haven't considered and maybe there's many, many processes in between. So in that sense, not too dissimilar from critical approaches, but it's just the way that these approaches go about it. I think the danger, which has been noted in relation to mainstream economics in in that field as well, is that you end up with lots and lots of variables, but not really much theory to tie those variables together and explain the context or the implications for practice arising. So you get mainstream approaches starting to measure lots of personality traits, lots of different perceptions of the working environment, and maybe little fragments of the context, such as their supervisor's style or the stress in their particular type of work. But this doesn't, in my view, really add up to a coherent bigger picture. And I think somebody working their way through this research might feel confused about what conclusions to draw from it or how to build on it in an insightful way. And in the 1990s and 2000s, in this chapter, I go on to look at how lots of this research on teams and organisations was essentially asking the question, is diversity good or is it bad for these teams and organisations? And those familiar with regression and modelling will know that this is a kind of main effect question. Is the main effect of a predictor on an outcome or one variable on another positive or negative? And also an attempt to understand that maybe different types of diversity or types of difference could have different positive or negative effects. So an author called Harrison 
in the late 1990s started to talk about surface diversity and deep diversity and that some diversity was sort of superficial. It was on the surface, highly visible, and that that might lead to conflict or biased judgment and therefore negative outcomes and processes. On the other hand, deep diversity was somehow more meaningful, more flexible, something that could be discussed and used as a basis for collaboration and improved performance. But again, the picture becomes complicated. Models become complicated. And whether or not you're familiar with some of the modelling terms, the answer is often to add in lots more variables. And these variables can come in different forms. The term moderator variable describes a, a third variable between the predictor and outcome, a boundary condition that might change the relationship from positive to negative to neutral it might show that whether or not diversity is good or bad depends on third factors. And then you have mediator variables, which look at how or why diversity might lead to a particular outcome through an intervening mechanism or state or process. So this research does build up a picture, a complex picture of diversity, through lots and lots of seemingly almost randomly assorted variables. We know that things like conflict, time that people spend together working together, how they depend on one another, their personality traits, the norms of their team, the leadership of their team can all maybe affect how diversity pans out. But my conclusion from looking at the research and some of the researchers themselves conclude that these associations can feel unreliable, inconsistent, difficult to explain or draw implications from. It's not that there's a total absence of theory. Indeed, for the good or bad effects, there is perhaps good and bad theories. The bad theory, which many psychologists have been using for a long time, and it's actually quite an elaborate theory when you look at how it's been refined in more detail, but is often used in quite a superficial way, is the social categorization perspective. And that often is used to predict negative effects because it predicts that people categorise one another into in-groups and out-groups, and that that will lead to conflict and division and dysfunctional behaviour in teams and organisations. The good theory, the counterpart, was often has often been referred to as the information decision-making perspective. And this is a good theory for diversity because it implies that diversity, if explored appropriately within a team or organisation, can yield valuable information for decision-making and creativity and fruitful discussion. Other researchers have tried to urge caution in how these theories are used and to, to urge that you know, we take careful account of the conditions, whether or not people will categorise one another, whether or not people will explore diverse information and use it to make decisions. But it still seems it's urging caution that may or may not be heeded in any given study. In this chapter, I also look at a series of reviews. In quantitative terms, these papers can often be described as meta-analyses. They're meta because they are a study made up of other studies. So these papers are very important and impressive. They look at hundreds of studies often. But what we find is that they don't often draw clear conclusions. Sometimes they are forced to report that diversity 
doesn't lead to clear negative or positive effects on team performance and team outcomes. And there's a whole series of these. And some of them, the researchers who've conducted these mainstream reviews, have even concluded that, that the findings are troubling and limited. And those are their words, not, not mine. Um, and that some of the approaches, by their own admission, have been flawed because they suggest that diversity is good, bad or unrelated to team and business performance without specifying variables in ways that seem to lead to explainable effects. And some researchers have argued that the approach of trying to measure diversity as different types of variable or different types of categories of difference that then have positive or negative effects should almost be abandoned entirely. What might matter is the perceptions of diversity and the context, but the question remains of how to measure them. There's also been some research, not just at the team level, but at the organisational level, but there you get the same problem. Whether or not diversity is beneficial depends on so many other variables that it hinders a relatively straightforward, bigger picture understanding of, of what's going on with diversity. Ultimately, it depends on how old the business is, how big the business is, its type of strategies and policies, and maybe what type of industry or sector it's in, and many other unique contextual conditions, which hampers this sort of scientific project um, of finding some sort of universal model that takes account of everything just through adding variables. I do note that this mainstream approach appears to persist and it is enduring and it continues to develop and not all of those developments are negative or to be, um, to be criti immediately criticised without further reflection. Certainly there are slightly different methods and research styles within the mainstream approach. One interesting development is the idea of diversity fault lines that teams can split down the middle or split more than down the middle, split into three or more subgroups. And these could be double or triple splits according to different forms of diversity. So for example, if you have young Hispanic women and old white men on the same team or in the same department, you could say there was a triple fault line along age, gender and ethnicity. Again, though, we often end up saying that these are unequivocally negative for team performance and little more can be said about how to understand it or what to do about it. I also try to give credit to different types of quantitative method, although I'm not necessarily an authoritative expert on this. Social network analysis seems another way of thinking about how diverse people bond and relate in organisations. But often again, the implications and conclusions are a little limited. They simply argue that diverse parties may need to network more or develop more contacts over time. I have no doubt that we will continue to see mainstream approaches develop and they will come up with interesting concepts and approaches. But the question is how we reflect on them and reconcile them with some of the more critical realities of diversity. There may be different modelling techniques for categorising diversity and its effects. Case studies are also worth mentioning here. Case studies are not always overtly critical in their outlook, but they have led to interesting um, findings on how different organisations might approach diversity.
For example, in 2001, Ely and Thomas developed a famous study that looked at several organizations as case studies and their different approaches to integrating diversity into their teams. One company was just concerned with legal protections against discrimination. Another company was concerned with representation and hiring diverse minorities. But the third and most positive type was called the integration and learning type, an organization that truly integrated and learned from its diversity in its core strategies and core teams. Whilst not overtly critical, this research clearly has produced valuable distinctions around diversity in organisations. The term inclusion has also appeared in mainstream approaches, although again it's perhaps used in a slightly reductive way and in a way that we have seen before in other terms like integration. Inclusion is simply used to describe people who feel they belong and that they are included but that their differences are also at the same time recognized and validated so we are allowed to feel similar to others whilst also having our differences respected and again it's not sure it's not entirely clear how you would build on this um, in quantitative research terms special issues in applied psychology continue to appear asking what do we still not know about diversity and what do we know and trying to break down the problem into specific studies looking at things like stereotypes um, and positive and negative biases. But I would again observe that these findings only occur under certain conditions and the conclusions are fairly limited. We simply learn that some teams and some organisations may be more open to using diversity in more positive, constructive ways than others. I do think there will continue to be interesting developments around different types of statistics, whether it's means, standard deviations, ranges and ratios, and how those translate into measurements and understandings of diversity. So I note in the conclusion to this chapter that with the benefit of hindsight, which I undoubtedly have at this point in time, it's perhaps slightly too easy and unfair to point out omissions and shortcomings in this body of work. They have given This body of mainstream work has given us plenty to think about. It's not simply all the same. There are definitely different developments in how the work has improved, in how it takes into account different levels, different aspects of the context. However, sometimes it is simply difficult to answer all the questions, the critical questions about diversity, using just these approaches. The, the idea of diversity as a science, I think, can only go so far before we encounter difficulties of interpretation, even difficulties of access, accessing people um, either on the front line or people who are making decisions day to day. Quantitative research doesn't tap into that very well. Um, argue, I will argue that critical research has potential for tapping into that um, in ways that are a lot more promising. As we'll see in the next chapter, I will draw immediately a contrast and a point of departure from these mainstream approaches and start to talk more about what I mean by critical perspectives and critical approaches. I will not insist that these offer cures to everything or that these are perfect approaches without any shortcomings. That would be foolish, I think, um, but I will be using um, them as a point for setting out 
the remainder of the book. I still hold out hope that mainstream approaches might be able to reconcile some of their differences with critical approaches. But I wouldn't blame people for feeling less than hopeful, given that academic communities tend to keep quite separate um, in terms of how they understand diversity um, to this day. But let's see. And that's it for this time. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to seeing you again next time.